What's going on? For the moment, the life was back in my voice. These journeys were always a shock to my system, I felt a rush of energy. A suicide attempt is in progress. Only you can stop it. I'm not trying to kill myself just yet, I said. Not you, fool. The young man outside the window, on the ledge. He's attending the University of Southern California. His name is Donald, he plays soccer and he's a philosophy major. He's in his senior year and he doesn't want to live. Go to it, Socrates gestured toward the window. Socrates, I can't. Then he'll die. I looked out the window and saw, about 15 stories below, groups of tiny people looking up from the streets of downtown Los Angeles. Peeking around the side of the window, I saw a light-haired young man in brown Levi's and a t-shirt standing 10 feet away on the narrow ledge, looking down. He was getting ready to jump. Not wanting to startle him, I called his name softly. He didn't hear me, I called again. Donald. He jerked his head up and almost fell. Don't come near me. He warned. Then, how do you know my name? A friend of mine knows you, Donald. May I sit on the ledge here and talk to you? I won't come any closer. No, no more words. His face was lax, his monotone voice had already lost its life. Don do people call you Don? Yeah, he answered automatically. Okay, Don, I guess it's your life. Anyway, 99% of the people in the world kill themselves. What the hell is that supposed to mean? He said, an edge of life coming back into his voice. He started gripping the wall more tightly. Well, I'll tell you. The way most people live kills them M-you know what I mean, Don? They may take 30 or 40 years to kill themselves by smoking or drinking or stress or overeating, but they kill themselves just the same. I edged a few feet closer. I had to choose my words carefully. Don, my name is Dan. I wish we could spend more time talking we might have some things in common. I'm an athlete too, up at UC. Berkeley. Well. He stopped and started to shake. Listen, Don, it's getting a little scary for me to sit here on this ledge. I'm going to stand up so I can hold on to something. I stood slowly. I was shaking a little myself. Jesus, I thought. What am I doing out on this ledge? I spoke softly, trying to find a bridge to him. Don, I hear it's going to be a beautiful sunset tonight, the Santa Ana winds are blowing some storm clouds in. Are you sure you never want to see another sunset, or sunrise? Are you sure you never want to go hiking in the mountains again? I've never been up to the mountains. You wouldn't believe it, Don. Everything is pure up there the water, the air. You can smell pine needles everywhere. Maybe we could go hiking together, what do you think? Hell, if you want to kill yourself, you can always do it, after you've at least seen mountains. There, I'd said all I could say. Now it was up to him. Talked, I'd wanted more and more for him to live. I was feet from him now. Stop. He said. I want to die, now. I gave up. All right, I said. Then I'm going with you. Already seen the goddamn mountains anyway. He looked at me for the first time. You're serious, aren't you? Yeah, I'm serious. Are you going first, or am I? But, he said, why do you want to die? It's crazy. You look so healthy, you must have a lot to live for. Look, I said. I don't know what your troubles are, but problems dwarf yours, you couldn't even begin to grasp them. I'm through talking. I looked down. 
It would be so easy, just lean out and let gravity do the rest. And for once, I'd prove smuggled Socrates wrong. I could exit laughing, yelling, you were wrong, you old bastard. All the way down, until I smashed my bones and crashed my organs and cut myself off from the coming sunsets forever. Wait. It was done, reaching out for me. I hesitated, then grasped his hand. As I looked into his eyes, Don's face began to change. It narrowed. His hair grew darker, his body grew smaller. I was standing there, looking at myself. Then the mirror image disappeared, and I was alone. Startled, I took a step backward, and slipped. I fell, tumbling over and over. In my mind's eye, I saw the terrible hooded specter waiting expectantly below. I heard Sock's voice, yelling from somewhere above, 10th floor, lingerie, bedspreads, 8th floor, housewares, cameras. I was lying on the office couch, looking into Sock's gentle smile. Well? He said. Are you going to kill yourself? No. But with that decision, the weight and responsibility of my life once again fell upon me. I told him how I felt. Socrates grasped my shoulders and only said, stay with it, Dan. Before I left that night, I asked him, where is Joy? I want to see her again. In good time. She'll come to you, later, perhaps. But if I could only talk to her it would make things so much easier. Whoever told you it would be easy? Socrates, I said, I have to see her. You don't have to do anything, except to stop seeing the world from the viewpoint of your own personal cravings. Loosen up. When you lose your mind, you'll come to your senses. Until then, however, I want you to continue to observe, as much as possible, the debris of your mind. If I could just call her. Point. Get to it. He said. In the following weeks, the noise in my mind reigned supreme. Wild, random, stupid thoughts, guilts, anxieties, cravings, noise. Even in sleep, the deafening soundtrack of my dreams assaulted my cars. Socrates had been fight all along. I was in prison. It was a Tuesday night, when I ran to the station at 10 o'clock. Bursting into the office, I moaned, Socrates. I'm going to go mad, if I can't turn down the noise. My mind is wild, it's everything you told me. Very good. He said. The first realization of a warrior. If this is progress, I want to regress. Dan, when you get on a wild horse that you believe is tame, what happens? It throws you, or picks your teeth in. Life has, in its own amusing way, picked your teeth in many times. I couldn't deny it. But when you know the horse is wild, you can deal with it appropriately. I think I understand, Socrates. Don't you mean you understand you think? He smiled. I left with instructions to let my realization stabilize for a few more days. I did my best. My awareness had grown these past few months, but I entered the office with the same questions, Socrates, I finally realized the extent of my mental noise, my horse is wild, how do I tame it? How do I turn down the noise? What can I do? He scratched his head. Well, I guess you're just going to have to develop a very good sense of humor. He bellowed with laughter, then yawned and stretched not the way most people usually do, with arms extended out to the side, but just like a cat. He rounded his back, and I heard his spine go crack 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 crack. Socrates, did you know that you looked just like a cat when you stretched? I suppose I do, he replied nonchalantly. 
It's a good practice to copy the positive traits of various animals, just as we might imitate positive qualities of some humans. I happen to admire the cat, it moves like a warrior. And as it happens, you have modeled yourself after the jackass. It's time you started to expand your repertoire, don't you think? Question mark. Yes, I suppose it is, I answered calmly. But I was angry. I excused myself and went home early, just after midnight, and slept for five hours before my alarm woke me and I doubled back toward the station. At that moment, I made a secret resolution. No more playing victim, someone he could feel superior to. I was going to be the hunter, I was going to stalk him. It was still an hour until dawn, when his shift would end. I hid in the bushes that lined the bottom edge of campus, near the station. I would follow him and somehow find joy. Peering through the foliage, I watched his every move. My thoughts quieted in the intensity of my vigil. My sole desire was to find out about his life away from the station a subject about which he'd always been silent. Now I'd track down the answers myself. Like an owl I stared at him. I saw, as never before how smooth, how graceful he was. He washed windows without a wasted movement, slipped the nozzle into the gas tank like an artist. Socrates went into the garage, probably to work on a car. I grew weary. The sky was already light, when I roused myself from what must have been a few minutes of shut-eye. Oh, no, I missed him. Then I saw him, busy with his last-minute duties. My heart constricted, as he walked out of the station, crossed the street, and headed directly to, where I sat stiff, shivering, and achy, but well hidden. I just hoped he didn't feel like beating around the bush this morning. I faded back into the foliage and calmed my breathing. A pair of sandals glided past, no more than four feet from my temporary lair. I could barely hear his soft footsteps. He followed a path that forked right. Quickly but cautiously I scampered along the path like a squirrel. Socrates walked at a surprising dip. I barely kept up with his long strides and nearly lost him, when, far ahead, I saw a head of white hair entering Doe Library. What, I thought, could he be doing there of all places? Tingling with excitement, I closed in. Once past the large oak door, I cut past a group of early bird students who turned and left, watching me. I ignored them, as I tracked my prey down a long corridor. I saw him turn right and disappear. I sprinted over to, where he had disappeared. There could be no mistake. He had entered this door. It was the men's room, and there was no other exit. I didn't dare go in. I stationed myself in a nearby phone booth. Ten minutes passed, twenty minutes. Could I have missed him? My bladder was sending out emergency signals. I had to go in not only find Socrates, but to make use of the facilities. And why not? This was my domain after all, not his. I would make him explain. Still, it would be awkward. Entering the tiled bathroom, I saw no one at first. After finishing my own business, I started to search more carefully. There was no other door, so he still had to be there. One guy came out of a stall and saw me hunched over, looking under the stalls. He hurried out the door with wrinkled brow, shaking his head. Back to the business at hand. I ducked my head for a quick look under the last stall. First I saw the backs of a pair of sandaled feet, then suddenly Sock's face dropped into view, upside down with a lopsided grin. He obviously had his back to the door and was bending forward, his head down between his knees. I stumbled backwards in shock, completely disoriented. 
I had no good reason for my bizarre bathroom behavior. Socrates swung the stall door open and flushed with a flourish. Howie, a man can get constipated when he's being stalked by a junior warrior. As his laughter thundered through the tiled room, I reddened. He'd done it again. I could almost feel my ears lengthen as I was once again transformed into a jackass. My body churned with a mixture of shame and anger. I could feel my face turn red. I glanced at the mirror, and there, tied neatly in my hair, was a perky yellow ribbon. Things began to make sense, the people's smiles and laughter, as I'd walked through campus, the strange look I'd gotten from my fellow bathroom occupant. Socrates must have pinned it to my head, while I dozed off in the bushes. Suddenly very tired, I turned and walked out the door. Just before it swung shut, I heard Socrates say, not without a tone of sympathy in his voice, that was just to remind you who is the teacher and who is the student. That afternoon, I trained like the unleashed furies of hell. I talked to no one, and wisely, no one said a word to me. I quietly raged and swore I'd do whatever was necessary to make Socrates acknowledge me as a warrior. One of my teammates stalked me on my way out and handed me an envelope. Someone left this in the coach's office. It's addressed to you, Dan. A fan of yours? I don't know. Thanks, Herb. I stepped outside the door and ripped open the envelope. On an aligned piece of paper was written, Anger is stronger than fear, stronger than sorrow. Your writ is growing. You are ready for the sword, Socrates. Spee. Cutting free. The next morning, fog had rolled in off the bay, covering the summer sun, chilling the air. I awoke late, made some tea, and ate an apple. I decided to relax before tackling my daily activities, so I pulled out my small TV and dumped some cookies into a bowl. Switching on a soap opera, I immersed myself in someone else's problems. As I watched, mesmerized by the drama, I reached for another cookie and discovered that the bowl was empty. Could I have eaten all those cookies? Later that morning, I went running around Edwards Field. There I met Dwight, who worked up at the Lawrence Hall of Science in the Berkeley Hills. I had to ask his name a second time, because I didn't catch it the first time, another reminder of my feeble attention and wandering mind. After a few laps, Dwight remarked about the cloudless blue sky. I had been so lost in thought, I hadn't even noticed the sky. Then he headed for the hills, he was a marathon runner, and I returned home, thinking about my mind myself defeating activity, if ever there was one. I observed that in the gym I kept my attention focused precisely on every action, but when I stopped soaring, my thoughts would again obscure my perception. That night I walked to the station early, hoping to greet Socrates at the beginning of his shift. By now I'd done my best to forget about yesterday's incident in the library and was ready to hear any antidote to my hyperactive mind that Sock cared to suggest. I waited. Midnight arrived. Soon after, so did Socrates. We had just settled into the office when I started to sneeze and had to blow my nose. I had a slight cold. Sock put the tea kettle on, and I began, as was my custom, with a question. Socrates, how do I stop my thoughts, my mind, other than by developing a sense of humor? First you need to understand where your thoughts come from, how they arise in the first place. For example, you have a cold now, its physical symptoms tell you that your body needs to rebalance itself, to restore its proper relationship with sunlight, fresh air, simple food to relax into its environment. What does all this have to do with my mind? Everything. 
random thoughts that disturb and distract you are symptoms, too, of disease with your environment. When the mind resists life, thoughts arise. When something happens to conflict with a belief, turmoil is set up. Thought is an unconscious reaction to life. A car rolled into the station bearing a formally dressed older couple who sat like two ramrods in the front seat. Come with me, Sock ordered. He removed his windbreaker and his cotton sports shirt, revealing a bare chest and shoulders with lean, well-defined muscles under smooth, translucent skin. He walked up to the driver's side of the car and smiled at the shocked pair. What can I do, for you folks? Gasoline to fuel your spirits. Perhaps oil to smooth out the rough spots in your day? How about a new battery to put a little charge in your life? He winked at them openly and stood his ground, smiling, as the car lurched forward and sped away from the station. He scratched his head. Maybe they just remembered that they left the water running at home. While we relaxed in the office, sipping our tea, Socrates explained his lesson. You saw that man and woman resist what to them represented an abnormal situation. Conditioned by their values and fears, they haven't learned to cope with spontaneity. I could have been the highlight of their day. You see, Dan, when you resist what happens, your mind begins to race, the same thoughts that impinge upon you are actually created by you. And your mind works differently. My mind is like a pond without ripples. Your mind, on the other hand, is full of waves, because you feel separated from, and often threatened by, an unplanned, unwelcome occurrence. Your mind is like a pond into which someone has just dropped a boulder. As I listened, I gazed into the depths of my teacup, when I felt a touch just behind the ears. Suddenly my attention intensified, I stared deeper and deeper into the cup, down, down. Point. Point. I was underwater, looking up. This was ridiculous. Had I fallen into my teacup? I had fins and gills, very fishy. I whipped my tail and darted to the bottom, where it was silent and peaceful. Suddenly, a huge rock crashed into the water's surface. Shock waves slapped me backwards. My fins whipped the water again and I took off, seeking shelter. I hid until everything quieted down again. As time passed, I became accustomed to the little stones that sometimes fell into the water, making ripples. The large planks, however, still startled me. In a world filled with sound and dryness again, I lay on the couch, looking up, wide-eyed, at Sock's smile. Socrates, that was incredible. Please, not another fish story. I'm glad you had a nice swim. Now, may I continue? He didn't wait for an answer. You were a very nervous fish, fleeing every large ripple. Later, you became used to the ripples but still had no insight into their cause. You can see, he continued, that a magnificent leap of awareness is required for the fish to extend its vision beyond the water in which it is immersed to the source of the ripples. A similar leap of awareness will be required of you. When you understand the source clearly, you'll see that the ripples of your mind have nothing to do with you. You'll just watch them, without attachment, no longer compelled to overreact every time a pebble drops. You will be free of the world's turbulence as soon as you calm your thoughts. Remember, when you are troubled, let go of your thoughts and deal with your mind. Socrates, how? A not-so-bad question. He exclaimed. As you've learned from your physical training, leaps of gymnastics, or of awareness don't happen all at once, they require time and practice. And the practice of insight into the source of your own ripples is meditation. 
with that grand announcement, he excused himself and went to the bathroom. Now it was time to spring my surprise on him. I yelled from the couch, so he could hear me through the bathroom door. I one step ahead of you, Socrates. I joined a meditation group a week ago. I thought I'd do something myself about this old mind of mine, I explained. We sit together for half an hour each evening. I'm already starting to relax more and get some control over my thoughts. Have you noticed I've been calmer? Say, Sock, do you practice meditation? If not, I can show you what I've learned. The bathroom door blasted open and Socrates came straight at me, screaming a blood-curdling shriek, holding a gleaming samurai sword over his head. Before I could move, the sword slashed at me, cutting silently through the air, and stalked inches over my head. I looked up at the hovering sword, then at Socrates. He grinned at me. You sure know how to make an entrance. You scared the shit out of me. I gasped. The blade ascended slowly. Poised over my head, it seemed to capture and intensify all the light in the room. It shone in my eyes and made me squint. I decided to shut up. But Socrates only knelt on the floor in front of me, gently placed the sword between us, closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and sat perfectly still. I watched him for a while, wondering if this sleeping tiger would waken and leap at me if I moved. Ten minutes passed, then twenty. I figured maybe he wanted me to meditate, too, so I closed my eyes and sat for half an hour. Opening my eyes, I watched him still sitting there like a Buddha. I started to fidget and got up quietly to get a drink of water. I was filling my mug when he put his hand on my shoulder. Water slushed over my shoes as my hand jerked. Socrates, I wish you wouldn't sneak up on me like that. Couldn't you make some noise? He smiled and spoke. Silence is the warrior's art, and meditation is his sword. It is the central weapon you'll use to cut through your illusions. But understand this, the sword's usefulness depends upon the swordsman. You don't yet know how to use the weapon, so it can become a dangerous, deluding, or useless tool in your hands. Meditation may initially help you to relax. You put your sword on display, you proudly show it to friends. The gleam of this sword distracts many meditators into further illusion, until they ultimately abandon it to seek yet another inner alternative. The warrior, on the other hand, uses the sword with skill and deep understanding. With it, he cuts the mind to ribbons, slashing through thoughts to reveal their lack of substance. Listen and learn. Alexander the Great, marching with his armies through the desert, came upon two thick ropes tied in the massive, convoluted Gordian knot. No one had been able to untie it until the challenge was given to Alexander. Without a moment's hesitation he drew his sword and in one powerful blow he cut the knot in two. He was a warrior. That is, how you must learn to attack the knots of your mind with the sword of meditation. Until one day you transcend your need for any weapon at all. Just then an old VW bus with a new coat of white paint and a rainbow painted on its side, chugged into the station. Inside sat six people, hard to tell apart. As we approached them, we could see that there were two women and four men, all dressed from head to toe in the same blue outfits. I recognized them as members of one of the many new spiritual groups in the Bay Area. These particular people self-righteously avoided acknowledging our presence, as if our worldliness might contaminate them. Socrates, of course, rose to the challenge, immediately affecting a combination limp and lisp persona. Scratching himself profusely, he was the perfect Quasimodo. Hey, Jack, 
he said to the driver, who had the longest beard I'd ever seen, Yeah, want gas, or what? Yes, we want gas, the man said, his voice as smooth as salad oil. Socrates leered at the two women in the back and, sticking his head in the window, he whispered loudly, Hey do you meditate? He said it, as if he were referring to a solitary form of sexual release. Yes, we do, said the driver, cosmic superiority oozing from his voice. Now, will you put gas in our vehicle? Sock waved at me to fill the tank, while he proceeded to push every button the driver had. Hey, Yano, you look kinda like a girl in that dress, guy, don't get me wrong, it's real pretty. And why don't you shave, what are ya hiding under that fuzz? While I cringed, he went from bad to even worse. Hey, he said to one of the women, is this guy your boyfriend? Tell me, he said to the other man in the front seat, do you ever do it, or do you save it up like I read in the National Enquirer? That about did it. By the time Socrates counted out their change with agonizing slowness, he kept losing count and starting over, I was ready to burst out laughing and the people in the van were trembling with anger. The driver grabbed his change and drove out of the station in a very insanely way. As their van pulled out, Socrates yelled, Meditation is good, for you. Keep practicing we'd no sooner returned to the office, when a big Chevy pulled into the station. The clang of the business bell was followed by an impatient ooga from a musical horn. I went out with Socrates to help. Behind the wheel sat a 40-year-old teenager dressed in flashy satin clothes, topped with a large feathered safari hat. He was extremely jittery and kept tapping the steering wheel. Next to him, batting false eyelashes in the rearview mirror, as she powdered her nose, sat a woman of indeterminate age. For some reason, they offended me. They looked asinine. I wanted to say, why don't you act your age? But I watched and waited. Hey man, you got a cigarette machine here? The hyperactive driver said. Socrates stopped what he had been doing and with a warm smile said, No sir, but there's an all-night market down the road. Then he returned to checking the oil, giving it his full attention. He returned the change, as if he were serving tea to the emperor. After the car sped away we remained at the pump, smelling the night air. You treated these people so courteously but were positively obnoxious to our blue-robed seekers, who were obviously on a higher evolutionary level. What's the story? For once, he gave me a simple, direct answer. The only levels that should concern you are mine, and yours, he said with a grin. These people needed kindness. The spiritual seekers needed something else to reflect upon. What do I owe? I blurted. More practice, he answered quickly. Your week-long meditation practice alone didn't help you stay calm when I ran at you with the sword, nor did it help our blue-robed friends when I poked a little fun at them. Let me put it this way, a forward roll is not the whole of gymnastics. A meditation technique is not the whole of the warrior's way. If you fail to understand the complete picture, you might be deluded. Practicing only forward rolls, or only meditation m your whole life, thus reaping only fragmented benefits of training. What you need to stay on the right track then, is a special map that covers the entire terrain you will explore. Then you'll realize the uses, and limits, of meditation. And I ask you, where can you get a good map? At a service station, of course. Well then, sir, step into the office and I'll give you just the map you need. We entered laughing, through the garage door. I plopped onto the couch, Socrates settled without a sound between the massive armrests of his plush chair. 
He stared at me for a full minute. Ho ho, I said nervously under my breath. Something's up. The problem is, he sighed at last, that I can't describe the terrain, for you, at least not in so many, words. He rose and walked towards me with that shine in his eye that told me to pack my suitcases, I was going on a trip. For an instant, from a vantage point somewhere in space, I felt myself expanding at the speed of light, ballooning, exploding to the outermost limits of existence, until I was the universe. Nothing separate remained. I had become everything. I was consciousness, recognizing itself, I was the pure light that physicists equate with all matter, and poets define, as love. I was one, and I was all, outshining all the worlds. In that moment, the eternal, the unknowable had been revealed to me as an indescribable certainty. In a flash, I was back in my mortal form, floating among the stars. I saw a prism shaped like a human heart, which dwarfed every galaxy. It diffracted the light of consciousness into an explosion of radiant colors, sparkling splinters of every rainbow hue, spreading throughout the cosmos. My own body became a radiant prism, throwing splinters of multicolored light everywhere. And it came to me that the highest purpose of the human body is to become a clear channel for this light so that its brightness can dissolve all obstructions, all knots, all resistance. I felt the light diffracted across the systems of my own body. Then I knew that awareness is how the human being experiences the light of consciousness. I learned the meaning of attention, it is the intentional channeling of awareness. I felt my body again, as a hollow vessel. I looked at my legs, they filled with warm, radiant light, disappearing into brightness. I looked at my arms, with the same result. I focused attention on every part of the body, until I became wholly light once again. Finally, I realized the process of real meditation to expand awareness, to direct attention, to ultimately surrender to the light of consciousness itself. A light flickered in darkness. I awoke to Socrates shining a flashlight back and forth across my eyes. Power failure, he said, baring his teeth like a Halloween pumpkin, as he held the light up to his face. Well, is it all a bit clearer now? He asked, as if I had just learned how a light bulb worked, rather than seen the soul of the universe. I could hardly speak. Socrates, I owe you a debt that I can never repay. I understand everything now, and I know what I must do. I don't suppose I'll be needing to see you again. I was sad that I had graduated. I would miss him. He looked at me, a startled expression on his face, then started to laugh more uproariously than I'd ever seen before. He shook all over, tears ran down his cheeks. Finally he calmed and explained his laughter. You haven't quite graduated yet, Junior, your work is hardly started. Look at yourself. You are fundamentally the same, as, when you stumbled in here months ago. What you saw was only a vision, not a conclusive experience. It will fade into memory, but even so, it will serve, as a basis for your practice. Now relax and stop acting so serious. He sat back, as mischievous and wise as ever. You see, he said lightly, these little journeys do save me some difficult explanations I must go through to enlighten you. Just then, the lights flashed on, and we left. He reached into his small refrigerator next to the water cooler and brought out some oranges, which he started to squeeze into orange juice, as he continued. If you must know, you're doing me a service, too. I'm also stuck in a place in time and space, and owe a kind of debt myself. A lot of me is tied up with your progress. 
in order to teach you, he said, tossing the orange rinds back over his shoulder into the wastebasket, making a perfect shot every time, I literally had to put a part of me in you. Quite an investment, I assure you. So it's a team effort all the way. He finished the juice and handed me a small glassful. A toast then, I said, to a successful partnership. Done, he smiled. Tell me more about this debt. To whom do you owe it? Question mark. Let's say that it's part of the house rules. That's silly, that's no answer at all. Silly it may be, but still I must abide by a particular set of rules in my business. He took out a small card. It looked normal enough, until I noticed a faint glow. In embossed letters, it said. Warrior, Incorporated. Socrates, Proprietor. Specializing in paradox, humor, and change. Keep it safe. It may come in handy. When you need me, when you really need me just hold the card in both hands and call. Exclamation point I'll be there, one way or the other. I put the card carefully in my wallet. I'll keep it safe, Socrates. You can count on it. Ha, by the way, you wouldn't have one of those cards with Joy's address on it, would you? He ignored me. We were silent then, as Socrates began to prepare one of his crisp salads. Then I thought of a question. Socrates, how do I do it? How do I open myself to this light of awareness? Well, he asked, answering a question with a question, what do you do, when you want to see? I laughed. I look. Oh, you mean meditation, don't you? Yep. He answered. And here's the core of it, he said, as he finished cutting the vegetables. There are two simultaneous processes, one is insight the willing of attention, the channeling of awareness to focus precisely on what you want to see. The other process is surrender letting go of all arising thoughts. That is real meditation that is, how you cut free of the mind. And, I just happen to have a story along these lines. A student of meditation was sitting in deep silence with a small group of practitioners. Terrified by a vision of blood, death, and demons, he got up, walked to the teacher, and whispered, Roshi, I've just had horrible visions. Let it go, said his teacher. A few days later, he was enjoying some fantastic erotic fantasies, insights into the meaning of life, with angels and cosmic decoration the works. Let it go, said his teacher, coming up behind him with a stick and giving him a whack. I laughed at the story and said, you know Sock, I've been thinking. Socrates gave me a whack on the head with a carrot, saying, let it go. We ate. I stabbed at my vegetables with a fork, he picked up each small bite with wooden chopsticks, breathing quietly, as he chewed. He never picked up another bite, until he was completely done with the first, as if each bite was a small meal in itself. I kind of admired the way he ate as I chomped merrily away. I finished first, sat back, and announced, I guess I'm ready to have a go at real meditation. Uh, yes. He put down his chopsticks. Conquering the mind. If only you were interested. I am interested I want self-awareness. That's why I'm here. You want self-image, not self-awareness. You're here, because you have no better alternatives. But I do want to get rid of my noisy mind, I protested. That is your greatest illusion of all, Dan. You're like the man who refuses to wear glasses, insisting they aren't printing the newspapers clearly anymore. Wrong, I said, shaking my head back and forth. I don't really expect you to see the truth of it yet, but you need to hear it. What are you getting at? I asked impatiently, my attention drifting outside. 
Here is the bottom line, Socrates said, in a voice that firmly held my attention. You identify with your petty, annoying, basically troubling beliefs and thoughts, you believe that you are your thoughts. Nonsense. Your stubborn illusions are a sinking ship, Junior. I recommend that you let them go, while there's still time. I stifled my rising temper. How can you know how I identify with my mind? Okay, he sighed. I'll prove it to you. What do you mean, when you make the statement, I'm going to my house? Don't you naturally assume that you are separate from the house that you are going to? Well of course this is stupid. Ignoring me, he asked, what do you mean, when you say, my body is sore today? Who is the I who is separate from the body and speaks of it as a possession question mark? I had to laugh. Semantics, Socrates. You have to say something. True enough, but the conventions of language reveal the ways we see the world. You do in fact, act, as if you were a mind or settle something inside the body. Why would I possibly want to do that? Because your greatest fear is death and your deepest craving is survival. You want forever, you desire eternity. In your deluded belief that you are this mind or spirit or soul, you find the escape clause in your contract with mortality. Perhaps, as mind you can win free of the body when it dies, hmm? It's a thought, I grinned. That's exactly what it is, Dan, a thought, no more real than the shadow of a shadow. Here is the truth, consciousness is not in the body, rather, the body is. In consciousness. And you are that consciousness, not the phantom mind which troubles you so. You are the body, but you are everything else too. That is what your vision revealed to you. Only the mind is deluded, threatened by change. So, if you will just relax mindless into the body, you'll be happy and content and free, sensing no separation. Immortality is already yours, but not in the way you imagine or hope for. You have been immortal, since, before you were born and will be long after the body dissolves. The body is consciousness, it is immortal. It only changes. The mind your own personal beliefs and history and identity is the only mortal, so who needs it? Socrates signed off by relaxing into his chair. Socrates, I said, I'm not sure all of that sank in. Of course not. He laughed. In any case, the words mean little, unless you realize the truth of it yourself. Then you'll be free at last and will fall helplessly into eternity. That sounds pretty good. He laughed. Yes, I'd say it is pretty good. But right now, I'm only laying the groundwork for what comes next. Socrates, if I'm not my thoughts, what am I? He looked at me, as if he'd just finished explaining that one and one are two and I then asked, yes, but what are one and one? I reached over to the refrigerator, grasped an onion, and shoved it into my hand. Peel it, layer by layer, he demanded. I started peeling. What do you find? Another layer. Continue. I peeled off a few more layers. Just more layers, sock. Continue peeling until there are no more layers. What do you find? There's nothing left. There's something left, all right. What's that? The universe. Consider that, as you walk home. I looked out the window, it was almost dawn. I came in the next night after a mediocre meditation session, still brimming with thoughts. There wasn't much early evening business, so we sat back, sipping peppermint tea, and I told him about my lackluster meditation practice. Yes, your attention is still diffused. Let me tell you a story. A Zen student asked his Roshi the most important element of Zen. 
The Roshi replied, attention. Yes, thank you, the student replied. But can you tell me the second most important element? And the Roshi replied, attention. Puzzled, I looked up at Sok, waiting for more. That's all, folks, he said. I stood up to get some water, and Socrates asked, are you paying close attention to your standing? Ah, yes, I answered, not at all sure that I was. I walked over to the dispenser. Are you paying close attention to your walking? He asked. Yes, I am, I answered, starting to catch on to the game. Are you paying close attention to how you talk? Well, I guess so, I said, listening to my voice. I was getting flustered. Are you paying attention to how you think? He asked. Socrates, give me a break, I'm doing the best I can. He leaned toward me. Your best is not good enough. The intensity of your attention must burn. Aimlessly rolling around a gym mat doesn't develop a champion, sitting with your eyes closed and letting your attention roam doesn't train your awareness. The intensity of your practice brings proportionate benefits. Here is a story. In a monastery, I sat day after day, straggling with a koan, a riddle my teacher had given me in order to spur the mind to see its true nature. I couldn't solve it. Each time I went to the Roshi, I had nothing to offer him. I was a slow student and was becoming discouraged. He told me to continue working on my koan for one more month. Surely then, he encouraged me, you will solve it. A month passed, and I tried my best. The koan remained a mystery. Stay with it one more week, with fire in your heart. He told me. Day and night the koan burned, but still I could not see through it. My Roshi told me, one more day, with all your spirit. At the end of the day I was exhausted. I told him, Master, it's no use a dash a month, a week, a day, I cannot pierce the riddle. My master looked at me a long time. Meditate for one more hour, he said. If you have not solved the koan by then, you will have to kill yourself. Why should a warrior sit around meditating? I thought this was a way of action. Meditation is the action of inaction, yet you are quite correct that the warrior's way is more dynamic. Ultimately, you will learn to meditate your every action. Yet at the beginning, sitting meditation serves as a ceremony, a special time set aside to increase the intensity of practice. You must master the ritual, before you can expand it properly into daily life. As a teacher I will use every method and artifice at my command to get you interested and to help you persevere with the work ahead. If I had just walked up to you and told you the secret of happiness, you would not have even heard me. You needed a guy to fascinate you, do a soft shoe, or jump up on rooftops, before you could get a little interested. Well, I'm willing to play games, for a little, while at least, but there comes a time, when every warrior must walk the path alone. For now, I'll do what is necessary to keep you here, learning this way. I felt manipulated and angry. So I can grow old sitting in this gas station like you, waiting to pounce on innocent students? I regretted my remark as soon as it slipped out. Socrates, unfazed, smiled and spoke softly. Don't mistake this place, or your teacher, Dan. Things and people are not always, as they seem. I am defined by the universe, not by this station. As to why you should stay, what you can gain, isn't it obvious? I am completely happy, you see. Are you? A car pulled in, clouds of steam surrounding, its radiator. Come, C said. This car is suffering and we may have to shoot it and put it out of its misery. 
We both went out to the stricken car, whose radiator was boiling and whose owner was in a foul mood, fuming. What took you so long? I can't wait around here all night, damn it. Socrates looked at him with nothing less than loving compassion. Let's see if we can't help you, sir, and make this only a minor inconvenience. He had the man drive into the garage, where he put a pressure cap on the radiator and found the leak. Within a few minutes he'd welded the hole shut but told the man that he would still need a new radiator in the near future. Everything dies and changes, even radiators, he winked at me. As the man drove away, the truth of Sock's words sank in. He really was completely happy. Nothing seemed to affect his happy mood. In all the time I'd known him, he had acted angry, sad, gentle, tough, humorous, and even concerned. But always, happiness had twinkled in his eyes, even when tears welled up in them. I thought of Socrates, as I walked home, my shadow growing and shrinking, as I passed under each streetlight. I kicked a stone into the darkness as I neared my apartment, walking softly down the driveway to the back, where my little converted garage waited under the branches of a walnut tree. It was only a few hours away from dawn. I lay in bed but couldn't sleep. I wondered whether I could discover his secret of happiness. It seemed even more important right now than jumping up onto rooftops. Then I remembered the card he had given me. Quickly, I got out of bed and turned on the light. Reaching into my wallet, I extracted the card. My heart started to beat rapidly. Socrates had said that if I ever really needed him to hold the card in both hands and just call. Well, I was going to test him. I stood for a moment, trembling, my knees were starting to shake. I took the softly glowing card in both hands and called, Socrates, come in Socrates. Dan calling. I felt like a complete fool, standing there at 4.55 a.m., holding a glowing card, talking to the air. Nothing happened. I tossed it carelessly onto the dresser in disgust. That's when the light went out. What? I yelled, as I spun around trying to sense if he was there. In classic movie style, I took a step backward, tripped over my chair, bounced off the edge of the bed, and sprawled to the floor. The light went back on. If someone had been within earshot, that person might have assumed I was a student having trouble with ancient Greek studies. Why else would I be yelling at 5.02 in the morning, goddammit, Socrates exclamation point. I'd never know whether the blackout had been a coincidence or not. Socrates had only said he'd come, he hadn't said how. I sheepishly picked up the card to put it back into my wallet, when I noticed it had changed. Underneath the last lines, paradox, humor, and change, appeared two words in bold print, emergencies only. Laughing, I fell asleep in no time at all. Summer workouts had begun. It was good to see old familiar faces. Herb was growing a beard, Rick and Sid were cultivating their dark summer tents and looked slimmer and stronger than ever. I wanted so much to share my life and the lessons I'd been learning with my teammates, but I still didn't know where to begin. Then I remembered Sock's business card. Before warm-up began, I called Rick over. Hey, I want to show you something. Once he saw that glowing card and Sock's specialties, I knew he'd want to know more about it, maybe they all would. After a dramatic pause, I pulled the card and flipped it over to him. Take a look at that, pretty strange, huh? That guy is a teacher of mine point. Rick looked down at the card, turned it over, then looked back up at me, his face as blank as the card. Is this a joke? I don't get it, Dan. 
I looked at the card, then turned it over. Ha, I granted, stuffing the piece of paper back into my wallet. Just a mistake, Rick. Let's warm up. I sighed inwardly. This was bound to strengthen my reputation as the team eccentric. Socrates, I thought, what a cheap trick, disappearing ink. That night, I had the card in my hand, when I walked into the office. I threw it down on the desk. I wish you'd quit playing practical jokes, Socrates. I'm tired of looking like an idiot. He looked at me sympathetically. Oh, have you been looking like an idiot again? Socrates, come on. I'm asking you, will you please quit it? Quit what? The gag with the disappear, out of the corner of my eye I caught a soft glow from the vicinity of the desk. Warrior, Incorporated. Socrates, Prop. Specializing in, paradox, humor. And change. Emergencies only. I don't get it, I murmured. Does this card change? Everything changes, he replied. Yes, I know, but does it disappear and appear again? Everything disappears and appears again. Socrates, when I showed it to Rick, there was nothing there. It's the house rules, he shrugged, smiling. You're not being particularly helpful, I want to know how. Point. Let it go, he said. Let it go. Summer passed quickly, with intensive workouts and late nights with Socrates. We spent half the time practicing meditation and the other half working in the garage or just relaxing over tea. At times like these I would ask about Joy, I longed to see her again. Socrates would tell me nothing. With vacations and imminent, my mind drifted back to the coming classes. I had decided to fly down to Los Angeles for a week's visit with my parents. I would put my Valiant in garage storage here, and buy a motorcycle, while down in Los Angeles, then drive it up the coast. I was walking down Telegraph Avenue to do some shopping and had just come out of the pharmacy with toothpaste, when a scrawny teenager came up to me, so close I could smell stale alcohol and sweat. Spare some change, can't you? He asked, not looking at me. No, sorry, I said, not feeling sorry at all. As I walked away, I thought get a point job. Then vague guilt came into my mind, I'd said no to a penniless beggar. Angry thoughts arose. He shouldn't walk up to people like that. I was halfway down the block, before I realized all the mental noise I had tuned into, and the tension it was causing, just, because some guy had asked me for money and I'd said no. In that instant I let it go. Feeling lighter, I took a deep breath, shook off the tension, and turned my attention to the beautiful day. That night at the station I told Socrates my news. Sock, I'm flying down to Los Angeles in a few days to visit my folks. I'm going to buy a motorcycle, while I'm down there. And I just learned this afternoon that the United States Gymnastics Federation is flying Sid and me to Ljubljana, Yugoslavia, to watch the World Gymnastics Championships. They think we are both potential Olympians and want to give us some exposure. How about that? To my surprise, Socrates' point just frowned, saying, What will be, will be. I chose to ignore this and started out the door. Well, bye for now, Sock. See you in a few weeks. I'll see you in a few hours, he responded. Meet me at Ludwig's Fountain, at noon. Okay I answered, wondering what was up. Then I said goodnight. I got six hours sleep and ran to the fountain just outside the student union. Ludwig's Fountain was named after a dog who used to frequent the spot. Several other dogs were rumping and splashing there, 
cooling off from the August heat, a few little kids were waiting in the shallow water. Just as the Campanile, Berkeley's famous bell tower, began to chime the noon hour, I saw Sock's shadow at my feet. I was still a little sleepy. Let's walk, he said. We strolled up through campus, past Sproul Hall, beyond the optometry school and Cowell Hospital, up beyond the football stadium, into the hills of Strawberry Canyon. Finally, he spoke. For you, Dan, a conscious process of transformation has begun. It cannot be reversed, there's no going back. To try and do so would end in madness. You can only go forward now, you're committed. You mean like in an institution? I tried to joke. He grinned. Perhaps there are similarities. We walked silently then, in the shade of the overgrown bushes along the running trail. No one can help you beyond a certain point, Dan. I'll be guiding you for a while, but then even I must stand back, and you will be alone. You'll be tested severely, before you're done, you'll have to develop great inner strength. I only hope it comes in time. The mild day breeze had stopped and the air was hot, still, I felt a chill. Shivering in the heat, I watched a lizard scurrying through the underbrush. Sock's last few words had just registered. I glanced over at him. He was gone. Frightened, not knowing why, I hurried down the path. I didn't know it then, but my preparations had ended. My training was about to begin. And it was to begin with an ordeal I almost didn't survive. Book 2. The. Warriors. Training. The sword is sharpened. After storing the Valiant in a rented garage, I boarded the F-Bus to San Francisco, connecting with airport transit, which got caught in a traffic jam. It looked as if I'd be late for my flight. Anxious thoughts began to arise, I felt my belly tense then, as soon as I noticed it, I let it all go, as I'd been trained. I relaxed and enjoyed the scenery along Bayshore Freeway, reflecting on my growing mastery over stressful thoughts which had habitually plagued me in the past. And as it turned out, I caught my plan with seconds to spare. Dad, an older version of me with thinning hair, wearing a bright blue sports shirt over his muscular chest, met me at the airport with a strong handshake and warm smile. Mum's face crinkled sweetly, as she greeted me at the door of their apartment with hugs and kisses and news about my sister and nieces and nephews. That evening I was treated to one of Mum's latest piano pieces, Bach, I think it was. The next morning at dawn, Dad and I were out on the golf course. All the while, I'd been tempted to tell them about my adventures with Socrates, but thought better of silence. Perhaps I'd explain it all in writing someday. It was good to visit home, but home seemed so long ago and far away. When Dad and I were sitting in the sauna at Jack Lalanne's health spa after our golf game, he said, Danny, college life must agree with you. You're different, more relaxed, nicer to be around, not that you weren't nice to be around before. He was searching for the right words, but I understood. I smiled. If he only knew. I spent most of my time in Los Angeles looking for a motorcycle and finally found a 500cc Triumph. It took me a few days to get comfortable with it and I almost fell twice, each time thinking I'd seen joy coming out of a store or disappearing around a corner. My final day in Los Angeles soon arrived. Early the next morning I'd zoom up the coast to Berkeley, meet Sid that evening, and we'd take off for Yugoslavia and the World Gymnastics Championships. I relaxed around the house during the day. After dinner, I took crash helmet in hand and left the house to shop for a traveling bag. 
As I walked out the door, I heard Dad say, Be careful, Dan, motorcycles are hard to see at night. His usual caution. Yeah, Dad, I'll be careful, I yelled back. Then I gunned the bike and pulled out into the traffic feeling very macho in my gymnastics t-shirt, faded Levi's, and work boots. Invigorated by the cool evening air, I headed south toward Wilshire. My future was about to change, because at that moment, three blocks ahead, George Wilson was preparing to make a left turn on Western Avenue. I roared through the dusk, the street lights flashed by, as I approached 7th and Western. I was about to cut through the intersection, when I noticed a red and white Buick facing me, signaling for a left turn. I slowed down, a small precaution which probably saved my life. Just as my bike entered the intersection the Buick suddenly accelerated, turning directly in front of me. For a few more precious seconds, the body I was born with was still in one piece. There was time enough to think, but not to act. Cut left my mind screamed. But there was oncoming traffic. Swerve right. I'd never clear the fender. Laid it down. I'd slide under the wheels. My options were gone. I slammed on the brakes and waited. It wasn't real, like a dream, until I saw a flashing image of the driver's horrified face. With a terrible thud and the musical sound of tinkling glass, my bike smashed into the car's front fender, and my right leg shattered. Then everything sped up horribly, as the world turned black. I must have lost and regained consciousness just after my body somersaulted over the car and crashed onto the concrete. A moment of blast numbness, then the pain began, like a searing, red-hot vice, squeezing and crushing my leg tighter and tighter, until it became more than I could bear and I started to scream. I wanted it to stop, I prayed for unconsciousness. Far away voices. Just didn't see him. Parents' phone number. Take it easy, they'll be here soon. Then I heard a faraway siren, and hands were removing my helmet, lifting me onto a stretcher. I looked down and saw a white bone sticking out through the torn leather of my boot. With the slam of the ambulance door, I suddenly recalled Sock's words, and you'll be tested severely, before you're done.